0: hey guys welcome to another tgs podcast today we got a guy called caleb Smith on. he not only shoots for the u.s air force rifle team but he also wants to talk to me today regarding misconceptions of american gun culture i hope you enjoy
1: Ah, uh, well we're doing doing pretty well you know um missouri has not been hit too bad with like the virus and whatnot so you know overall things are actually starting to look up you know we're hoping to start opening up slowly um Start getting back to semi-normal, um, you know. So they're going to reassess the situation here at the end of the month, and then um, decide if they can start reopening the more essential parts of the economy and whatnot, the local area, um, yeah. and maybe lift some travel bans and whatnot. So that'll be uh, that'll be good. So travel bans are in place in Missouri. Um. So there's there's travel restrictions depending on what your career is. Um, so. For the military especially, that's, that's across the entire Department of Defense. Um, each of the commanders um, have been given their own authority to limit your travel area. So I'm limited to within an hour uh, radius of my home, um, which kind of stinks because a lot of the, the early uh, spring hunting and fishing seasons have opened up. So the only thing I can really do is turkey season right now, which is okay. Um, but uh, like trout season and whatnot has opened up, and I was really looking forward to, to doing some fly fishing, which we won't be doing now. You got nowhere close to home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, northern Missouri is pretty flat and stagnant, so we don't get the, the flowing water that's needed for trout. The southern part of the state does. So um, in order to do any sort of trout fishing or whatnot, or cold water fish, you have to go to the south part of the state, which is, you know, two to three hours away from from here. What what sort of fishing do you have where you are? Um, up northern part of Missouri is uh it's mostly like uh stagnant kind of water. So catfish, um crappie fishing, um a lot of your, your classic Midwest fishing types, you know.
2: So um a oh, lot I of just, slow
1: uh, water I Had a subscriber send me uh uh I think uh Indiana
0: one uh Mm -hmm. a book of all their fishing rigs and luckily in the back it had a guide to fish id and it's amazing one of those things that you just take for granted like i expect you growing up catching fish where you where you are if someone says a trout to me i know what a trout looks like someone says a carp or a barbel to me i know exactly what that looks like but someone says something like a croppy or a catfish i understand that a basic catfish what it looks like but the actual idea of all these things was absolutely fascinating to me to
1: actually read through this book and have a have a look at it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, it it was different when I got out here. Um, so I actually grew up out in the uh, the northeast, out in New York, Western New York. Um, so I'm used to a lot of the cold water fish. So it's primarily trout and salmon, um, pike, uh, stuff like that. Um, it was different adjusting to the um, kind of the sport fish class is what I would say versus the the trout fishing type yeah. uh, fish that you would have back up northeast. Um, so it's an interesting change
3: for sure. <laughs> is a <it> good sport <laughs> but,
1: the same? I mean I, I presume it's the same as our kind of, so we
0: divide all our fishing into uh, game fish and coarse fish. Game fish are the ones you can eat. Trout, salmon, pike, and you've got coarse fish, the fat muddy right. horrible ones that we don't well, we don't eat over here but you guys have a much richer culture of
1: eating less exotic right. right yeah um to be honest with you so i i particularly don't like catfish um because i've been spoiled with boundless opportunities to go and catch stuff like salmon and trout and whatnot um I think cat is muddy. <laughs> it just tastes like dirt because that's what they do. They wallow around in the bottoms of the mud. Um, a bit like carp. Like a trout. To... But we, yeah, yeah. We
0: I've, I've had carp in Eastern Europe and they cook it and they cook it very, very well and with lots of spices yeah. and loads of flavor. But it's just a, the meat is just like a Play Doh to make into what they want as opposed to a piece right. of salmon or a piece of trout, which you can
1: just stands on its own pretty well right yeah you serve it on a plate and you know you almost have to cut it because it's it's firm enough to do that Mm. um and catfish is the same way it's kind of a mushy white fish um but in terms of like splitting them up between the sport and the uh i would say game fish the sport fish is kind of more like your uh your professional bass fishing and whatnot um Mm so uh, that's a pretty big thing out here because there's a lot of lakes and ponds and stuff like that where you know they have ideal habitat for that kind of stuff and then um your game fish would be more geared towards kind of like the salmon and the trout and whatnot um they're all considered game fish but in here in the u.s it's like it's almost like you have different classes
3: um of fishing i would say but so it, a lot it makes of it
0: separation between the communities
3: yeah. So, um, yeah.
1: in, so I, I'm kind of a midway point where I I kind of just do it all, um, which is not necessarily very common. Um, you'll have people that are, you know, hardcore salmon and trout fishers and they will completely denounce bass fishing altogether. And then you have the other side of that coin where they're bass fishermen only and anything that's not bass, they don't want to do it, you know? So, <laughs> um, I always
3: thought
0: it's life was way too short for that, but I'm sure at some point in my life, I've become a dedicated, all I want to do is shoot this type of deer and everything else can disappear. And go
1: Ex- Exactly. You know, and it's one of those things, I think it's just how you grew up. So, I mean, I grew up doing it all, you know, we, we hunted, you know, birds and deer and everything like that. And then for fishing, we In the location that I was at, you had the Finger Lakes in New York. So you literally, you could fish all the bass species and you could also fish all the trout species in the same location. So it just depends on what you want. With your old man? What's that? With your your dad? Yeah, yeah. Um, So my whole family as a whole is just, you know it's a very deep lineage of of outdoorsmen. So um, it's
3: just something we did as a family typically. Nice. So, I mean, yeah. before we go any further, let's talk a bit about you. Introduce yourself.
1: All right. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I'm, I'm a senior airman in the United States Air Force. Um, I've been in for five years now, I'll actually stoned on uh, staff sergeant here at uh, May 1st. So moving up through the ranks and it's, it's been it's been pretty good. It's been an interesting ride. Um, I never would have imagined getting here. Um, it was it was interesting when I started out, you know, I, I graduated high school in, uh in 2015 and then um, went right into the Air Force from there. Um, it was kind of funny because I, I decided that I was going to leave for basic training in September because I figured, you know, Texas would be cooled down a bit by then. I was wrong. <laughs> so September in New York, it was 52 degrees and they were calling for snow that night. And I landed in Texas. It was 105 and 80% humidity. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a shock. <laughs> um, so then I, I spent two months down there training, and then I went up to uh, – and that's in uh, San Antonio, Texas, It's so right in the Gulf. And then I moved up to uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, which is up by Dallas, so kind of uh, closer to Oklahoma, out yeah. in the grassland which is kind of amazing because you can go from the desert golf terrain of San Antonio, drive eight hours north in Texas, never leave the state, and you're in a completely different terrain. Um, it's, it's complete plains grasslands out there. This, um, the scale of Texas
3: is, I mean, pr- a pretty scary thing. For, for yeah, it's, it's pretty massive. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's pretty large. Um,
1: Did you do any hunting folks you were down uh, there? Uh, no, I was too busy training and whatnot. So your first year in the military, and regardless of what branch, most of it's training. You really don't have much time to do anything. Um, so when I got to Wichita Falls, it was another two months of training there. And then uh, in February, I ended up getting to Whiteman Air Force Base, which is here in, in Missouri. Um, and I'm an ammo troop, so I'm, I'm a bomb builder for the B-2 Stealth. That's cool yeah yeah it's a good time it's a good time my mother hated it initially <laughs> but um i mean one presumes it's quite safe it it is you know for the most part if there's if something goes wrong at the same time you know it's it's kind of a reassurance i won't know it but you know it'll be quick
3: <laughs> i very true.
2: so
1: but overall it's, it's actually a very it's a very safe job you have to really screw up for it to get dangerous um but at the same time, there's also precautions that we take to make sure that it stays safe as well. You know, that's, that's just inherently part of um, working with explosives and whatnot as, as often as we do. That is cool. Um, I assume you get to watch your ordnance go off occasionally. Uh, on occasion, yeah. Um, sometimes when they'll, um, like, if we ever do a strike or something like that, or if we end up uh, um, doing a practice drop or something like that, they'll send us the footage back. We do get to see a lot of like our test footage on some of our experimental weapons and whatnot. And that's always cool because uh, sometimes it's like the first time that specific weapon has ever been built. Um, before that point, it's been so a concept it's, or something it too like top that. secret for you to kind of give us a flavor of the kind of experimental stuff you go with? Um, so, it, some, a lot of the stuff I can't talk about... Um, <laughs> But uh, the one that I can is, is the uh, the GPU-57, and it's called the MOP, the Massive Ordnance Penetrator.
2: Um, so
1: that's kind of uh, Whiteman Air Force's baby. You know, it's, it's a 30,000-pound penetration bomb.
2: Um, and
1: yeah, a penetration yeah. bomb, we're
0: talking, it's designed to go into buildings before it explodes?
1: Um, well, it's, it's designed to actually penetrate beneath the ground um, and hit underground facilities.
4: Oh, that's cool. Um, that are,
1: yeah, essentially the idea is that we can, you can hit the top of a mountain and blow something up that's underneath it. That's amazing. So, so, I, I mean, it's a complete aside,
0: but it's fascinating. Does the bomb itself penetrate or is it designed to put the explosion down into the ground?
1: No, the bomb itself penetrates. Um How We'll 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 talk about that in person. I don't want to put that one all the way out on the
3: <laughs> distance, um, yeah. I presume. More like, more than <laughs> more, <laughs> more than a meter.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah.
3: Oh yeah. By far. <laughs>
1: By far. Yeah. <laughs> uh we're we're talking several stories. <laughs> oh hell. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, beneath beneath the surface. <laughs> that is amazing technology, right? Yeah. That is amazing technology. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool.
0: And I apart from being a staff sergeant you are a hunter
1: yeah yeah so it's um it's always been some part of my life and whatnot you know like i said we, we've always hunted uh waterfowl and, and turkey and, and deer um and your small game as well it's always just been a big part of my you know my heritage and lineage so it's you know it's kind of bred into me so um, what have you got what have you got close to now um, well, so Missouri, believe it or not, is overall one of the best locations in the U.S. for any sort of hunting, um, and fishing for that matter. Um, we've got, the biggest thing out here is white-tailed deer. I mean, there's so many out here. If, if you can't kill a deer in Missouri, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> there's, there's just, they're like rabbits out here. There's so many of them. Have they got a um, long season to account for that or not? Or is it just um, is there a lot of them because there's a low bag limit? Uh, no, they actually... So you, when you buy a hunting license out here, you get three tags. Um, you get a, an any deer, which would be a, a buck tag or a doe tag. You can use it on either one. And then you typically get two doe tags along with that. Um, you get five if you hunt archery as well. Because then you get um, an either or and you get a doe tag as well. So I hunt both archery and rifle season. um, And this year I'll be hunting muzzleloader as well, um, which you use your your archery tags for muzzleloader. Um, uh, So you could potentially take five deer just for what the MDC gives you. And if you fill all of them, you can go back and buy individual tags. Um, How much
0: is the hunting license and the individual tags?
3: uh, I believe... Last year, it cost me 43
1: and I think it was like 5 bucks a tag. So, size, yeah, yep. it's – no, no. Especially – so, growing up in New York, a hunting license um well I actually got what they called the sportsman's license out there. It included all of your fishing and hunting, and it also had your tags attached to it. It was, it was about 120 bucks, so nearly half the price in Missouri, <laughs> you know, so –
3: So what? So many. Yeah,
1: Missouri overall. That's the interesting. Why is this? Well, so Missouri. It's it's we're kind of in the breadbasket out here. So Kansas is right next door. Uh, Iowa is directly north of us and whatnot. Um, If you know anything about Boone and Crockett, um, it's kind of like a record um, standing for whitetail in particular. Um, They most of those record deer coming off the Missouri Iowa line. So, just north here, about an hour um, there's a lot of very vast soybean and grain fields around here, as well as a very good mix of dense um i would i would say they're they're not entirely hardwood forests um but they're you're getting into that type of a terrain
2: um
1: so they have very good cover and then they have an unlimited food source with the grain farming that goes on in this area. Um, and the type of grain that's grown in this area is very conducive to just growing large deer and they're able to proliferate very easily um, as a result.
0: I guess as part of that farming,
1: there's a lot of private land as well. And as such, there's, a,
0: there's places for them to get away or is what's the public land, private land split?
1: So um, actually we're, you know, we're, my house is located, um, like I rent, obviously being in the military, depending, you know, if I move around and whatnot. Um, so the house that I'm renting is on 2,000 acres worth of farm. And then, right. yeah, yeah, that's, and that's, that's like a, a medium to large size farm out here in the Midwest. Yeah. And um, that's, that's pretty typical of your grain farmers out here. My dog's being needy over here.
3: <laughs> hey, bud. <laughs>
1: Um, and then, uh, my backyard actually borders, uh, Martha Perry conservation area, which yeah. is another 4,200 acres worth of, worth of public accessible, um, state land. So is it, it, I'm in kind of a sweet spot, but overall, and Missouri is actually really good for that too. If I believe, if I remember right, I believe they're there's somewhere between 15th and 20th in the U.S. for the most um, public accessible and usable land. Um, and I couldn't tell you how many millions of acres of public accessible and usable land there is in, in Missouri enough. Yeah, it, there's there's lots and lots of, um, and you know what's what's neat about it too is most of it, um, especially the conservation area, um, areas and whatnot, you can hunt and fish those as well, depending on the seasons. A lot of those areas will have their own individual laws that you have to abide by. So like on Martha Perry, which is right out back here, um, you have to, uh, what is it? I believe, I believe it's a four point rule for deer, meaning that the deer has to have four points on one side or larger um, for antlers um, if, if you take a buck and then uh, on top of that it's archery only so it's much more challenging which is another reason too is why there's so many deers missouri allows you the opportunity to take more deer but they make it more difficult to take a mature deer um because you actually have to be selective on, on the type of animal that you're taking i guess i guess that's good I presume. yeah it is it is very good for the deer populations and whatnot um particularly for the males. Um, when it comes to whitetail, there's, there's far more does than there are bucks. And um, a lot of times in states, New York has a problem with it right now, actually, they're considering going to the three point rule statewide as a result, is that um, a lot of hunters and whatnot, they'll go out and they'll shoot the first deer that they see, um, which in a, in a heavily populated, or uh, you know in terms of animals,
2: um, in a
1: densely populated area, that might be okay, but eventually, years and years of doing that, it starts to hurt your population because you know your your younger bucks are not becoming mature and they're not um, breeding as they should. Um, so the four-point and the three-point restrictions that are throughout Missouri, um, it allows the the deer to become mature before they're actually harvested.
0: Yeah, and the fact that the the tags very much lean towards doe, coming. Right.
3: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So there's two things you wanted to discuss, and I well, we should probably start on those, because I'm sure we'll go around in plenty of circles as we go. And the first right. was misconceptions with American gun culture.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when you first reached out, you're like, yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to get someone's viewpoint, you know, in military and in like an area where you can own the guns that you guys fight with. And I was like, well, oh, not so much. <laughs> so... um one of the biggest misconceptions is like everyone can run around in the U.S. and get automatic firearms and whatnot, and they're the same guns that we use in the military and whatnot, and it's simply not true. <laughs> um, yes, you can own AR-15s, but the difference between an AR-15 and an M-16, are, there's there's quite a few.
2: Um,
1: so like an AR-15 is, is purely a semi-automatic weapon only. Um Whereas, you know, your M16 is fully automatic and then an M4 is is three-round burst, which is what we use typically in the military. You cannot just go out and buy an M4 or an M16. Um, Those are what are called class three weapons. And you have to have a very specific license and you have to go through a very lengthy federal process in order to get approved to own one of those guns. And then not to mention the price of a gun like that. Um, Because there's not many of them in the public to begin with. Um, You're for uh, I saw one online the other day for sale, Um, and it again you have to have all of those prerequisites in order to even bid on the gun, and then um, on top of that, it had a price tag that was thirty thousand dollars.
3: Oh wow! So it's
1: pretty. The limitations the limitations on getting a fully automatic firearm in the U.S. are there's so many. Um and then on top of that, once you get all those um those prerequisite factors and you actually gain the firearm. So just at
0: that point, they, say, like talk us through those prerequisite factors again. So you need to get a federal check. What does that look at Your mental health
1: and uh criminal record, I guess. Yeah, and it's actually it's pretty extensive, all the things that they go into. Um I couldn't tell you off the top of my head of how far back they go. For some reason fifteen years is, is sticking out. I, in my head, I I wouldn't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Um, and then on top of that, they go like you said, they go through all your mental health records and whatnot. Um, and if you're applying to gain license to own a fully automatic weapon, um, they go even further.
2: Um, and then on
1: top of that, if if there's waiting periods and whatnot in most states, so how long in order for like, it depends. New York currently has a week long wait. And what that does, is it allows um, the government to actually do a, a thorough check. Um, not that the ATF doesn't do a thorough check because it's, most of it's an automated system. It, you know, There's certain key things that get flagged when they do your, your background check and whatnot. And then if you do get flagged, um, it's called a hold, um, and they won't allow you to actually purchase the weapon. So you can actually go and say, hey, I'm gonna buy this weapon, you pay for it, but you don't actually receive the weapon until you get a pass from the ATF, and that is for um, any which is any, any gun, or is that just for? That's that's for, that's for any gun. That's for any gun. Um, particularly, um, full auto and and pistols. Those typically take longer for you to get a pass. Um, usually,
0: every new purchase, or once you own one, you can just go for gold.
1: That's every new purchase. So
0: um, on private sale.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, it depends on private sale. So there's a lot, a lot of states now, um, private sale is not, um, legal unless you go to, uh, somebody who has an an FFL, a federal firearms license, and then there's a legal transfer of custody from one person to the next. So say I want to sell you a gun, you know, and you're my neighbor. Um, we would have to go down to the gun shop here in town. And we would you know transfer the the firearm through uh the f f l yeah right, and he would he would then sign it over to you, and you would still receive a background check from that as well
0: okay um and that background check takes like a
1: week, or can it be immediate it it, it depends you know if you've got a clean record, you know I've never had a posit, you know uh, or a positive hold, so it's um it typically takes like a day for me if that um because I've never committed any crimes or anything like that I mean s- stuff like speeding tickets um if you have over a certain amount of speeding tickets, they'll hold your weapon um and they'll they'll look deeper into your record um so say you've got like five speeding tickets they'll hold and they'll they'll dig deeper into your in your record to see if there's anything else that sticks out that you shouldn't allow a firearm so it's not like i say it's not as easy, it's not as easy as most people think that it is. No. Now, say 10 years ago, it was easy. You know, you could go to a gun show and just pick up a gun. Um, it's since then, it, there's been a lot of changes and whatnot. And even then, there were still certain background checks in place and whatnot. Overall, it's, it's difficult to do it. Um, in some states, so Missouri, it's legal to do um, private sales of long guns. So rifle, full length rifles and, um, and shotguns so including semi-automatic full-length rifles yes yeah and the reason for that being is the the idea is that you can't you know so I, I collect m1 Garands. you're not gonna conceal an m1 Garand and go shoot a place up you know it's it's a it's a 40-inch rifle <laughs> there's not really any place to hide that go back to the uk firearms please <sighs> <laughs> probably yeah. get yeah. they probably disagree yeah they they also apply that so you know it, you want to buy an antique shotgun from somebody, you know, obviously with, a, you know, my Ithaca, for instance, you know, it's a 30 inch new Ithaca drilling. There's no way, or a new Ithaca double. There's no way you're ever going to try and shoot a place up with something like that. And that's the idea behind being able to do a private sale with that. But even then, um, if you want to play it safe, you should by all means take it to an FFL and do a proper transfer of custody. Um,
0: there's still a lot of guns around that aren't registered, per se, that were sold many years
3: ago, or over 10 years ago, as you say was the date. Well, um, I guess, what,
1: what, are you, what, are you, what are you trying to ask within that?
3: <laughs> well,
0: I, I guess, so uh, my presumption is, is the whole point in this is that the government have a database of what guns belong to who. Or is that not the point?
1: Yes and no. Um, It's not necessarily to have a database of what guns you own. It's to have a database of who has the guns.
3: Um,
1: So that way they can kind of monitor their their, uh, backgrounds and whatnot throughout their, I guess you could
3: say, livelihood of owning firearms. Um, Just a quick, quick sniff of your political feeling on that. Is it a good thing? I think so. I think where we're at right now is a good position to be. Um, I don't
1: agree with people trying to push more restrictions. Um, and the reason for that being is because the system that we have in place actually works. Um, in the cases that it doesn't, um, you know, on the news and whatnot, you'll see like there's a shooting somewhere and whatnot. That guy got a hold of that weapon illeg- illegally.
2: Um, and, you know, one
1: of the areas that a lot of those are coming from, and this is why I see a lot of them down south, is they're actually coming across the border from, from out of Mexico, from the cartels. Um, criminals are criminals. They're not going to follow the laws to get the guns. You know, that's kind of my feeling on it. That's all. I'll, I'll so, give a to the time as well. Right. And that's the thing is, like, so you start to install more restrictions on these firearms, and all you end up doing is just, you know, kind of pissing off. The law-abiding citizen, because he's the only one that's getting affected. Because again, a criminal is a criminal. He's not following the law already. You know, he's not gonna say, you know, oh, new gun laws have been installed. I guess I should not do that. No, it's they're criminals for a reason.
3: You know, but
1: I can, yeah, uh,
0: 100%, 100%. Do you, in that case, do you think that you should be allowed, uh, using the fair process, be able to get? fully automatic firearms, just as easy as you can, a
1: pistol?
3: No. no. Nope. Um,
1: and like I said, even even getting like a pistol and whatnot, those typically take a little bit longer because those are concealable. Um, and nowadays, you know, probably 90% of your pistols are, are semi-auto. Um, so they're not, even pistols themselves are not easily had, um, particularly depending on the state. Um, New York, has a week-long wait, regardless of what your background is on on pistols. And then on top of that, certain states require you to get a concealed carry permit. Um, So if you're going to carry the gun um, for self-defense in public, um, you're required to get a concealed carry permit and actually go through a class and whatnot. Um, and they they teach you all the laws, like how to actually handle and fire and shoot defensively um, with your your pistol. And yeah, if you don't for, have that, primarily for self defense. Yeah, and that's you know for for pistols. Yeah, it's it's that's what the concealed carry is for. Just so that way you can you know you can tuck it in your waistband or you have a you know an in the waistband holster or something like that, and you go out say. Um, I carry when I'm out on the highways and whatnot out here, um, highway 70 is a hot spot for kind of drug trafficking and whatnot. So if I pull off to a gas station or something like that, yeah. So highway 70 stretches all the way from, it's, it's literally a straight line from Dayton, Ohio, all the way out to Wichita, Kansas. So you can imagine that's a pretty big artery for, for the cartels that do manage to make it into the U S and whatnot. Um, all they have to do is they just stop at gas stations and they keep traveling to the big cities that are along the way,
3: you know.
2: Um
1: and it's it's not a huge problem, but it's still it's still something that would you know, I don't wanna take the chance of not having something. If I were to stop in a gas station and someone decides to hold the place up, you know, I'd rather have the option than not have it and actually be in trouble, you know. Most people who end up carrying Concealed and
3: whatnot will never actually draw their weapon at any time throughout their entire lifetime.
4: Most people will not.
3: One ego asks, "What the point is? The point of of carrying?" Yeah. So, like I said,
1: it's just having just as know, a devil's advocate, just as a devil's advocate. Of yeah, devil's advocate. You know, so if I don't have a weapon. And I pull into a gas station and somebody decides that they're going to, you know, go up to the, you know, the register. And they've got the gun pointed at, you know, at, at the person behind the counter, you know, trying to get get them to give all their money or whatever, whatnot. I'm in the back and I can see what's going on, you know, and I'm, and I'm carrying. I can stop that confrontation. You know, a lot of times the mere presence of another firearm is enough to make somebody, stop what they're doing.
2: Um, particularly
1: if if they're, um, you know, most crimes happen with, with knives and whatnot in the U.S. So, you're coming to somebody with a knife and that person draws a firearm on you, you're going to stop what you're doing really quick because now you're at a disadvantage. Do you feel like most Americans who concealed carry are actually prepared to pull the trigger? Or is it just a deterrent in
3: most cases? The ones
1: who have their, their concealed carry licenses, I would say that they're prepared. Um, not having the experience of actually pointing a firearm at a person is, that's a whole nother experience. Um, so that, that's something that they would definitely encounter when it, if they were in that situation where they had to. Like I said, and there's a CDC statistic out there. Um, I can't remember what it is. Is something like 350,000 potential crimes in the U.S. um, were stopped just by somebody drawing a weapon not even firing so again it's it's kind of those things the mere presence of of a good guy with a gun stops a crime from happening
2: Um,
1: just because it's it's the intention or the possible outcomes of of somebody having a firearm stopping the, the criminal I mean, you do make it sound like America is a pretty criminal, crime-filled place. I mean, it's – when we talk about these things, it seems like it. But when you look at the grand scheme of things, you know, in the U.S., it's a very safe place. And a lot of that – I think a lot of that
3: has to do with the firearms culture. I think it, I think it really does. Quite probably. Quite probably.
0: I I don't know. It's just such a very foreign yeah. thing to us, to me. To I mean, it was made not a reason to have a firearm for self-defense in this country like seventy or eighty years ago. So it's so far mm-hmm. removed from our culture to think about having a gun for self-defense, and it's pretty much illegal to defend yourself after a certain point in this in this country. So the right. answer is always to avoid confrontation if one can, because mm-hmm. there's reasonable force. But reasonable force is not defined is it it's 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 a very definition so I mean as a culture we are very I would say much more cautious about getting involved in any confrontation so when you're saying about someone's robbing a a gas station and a petrol station we should call it someone's robbing a petrol station and you're there in the back I haven't got a gun because I'm in England I haven't got a knife because I'm in England all I've got is a bottle of Lamborghini and four tins of Stella Right, <laughs> yeah. you just wouldn't get involved, and this is the, the I think there's, there's a real difficulty here because it does sort of stink of cowardice in some regard. Because inevitably, any man would go, I would like to get involved there to stop mm-hmm. this crime happening, but you can't. But even if right. you had a gun or a knife, you couldn't anyway, so there's no point. And it's a very right. strange cultural divide, like you say, yeah, I'll get involved. I'd get the gun out, yeah. stop the crime more than likely. Um, I That's why I carry it, to be right. a, a small policing force. I presume that's kind of the yeah.
1: Whereas Yeah, and that's, you know, we, you kind of said it right there is, is where, because um, if you think about it, you know, a crime, a lot of times, police reaction time is typically about five minutes to get to a location. And when someone is holding up a small area or something like that, or they go in and they have ill intentions, the crime is already going to be done and completed by the time the, the, you know, police arrive on the scene. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a a self-governing, you know, we're going to try and help each other out best we can type attitude within the firearms
3: community, at least ones that carry defensively, you know. So So especially... Stem from culturally. Do you think? Or, uh,
1: well, it, it stemmed when the English decided to take our firearms away back 250 years ago. <laughs> okay. um, and it's been there since. <laughs> so, as I so know, since you
0: have been a self policing, self governing nation.
1: And I do admire, mm-hmm.
0: by the way, a lot of American values and a lot of American governance culture in that regard. Right. Uh, not that I think that you guys are perfect by any means and neither are we so
4: right
1: yeah yeah and I'll be the first to admit there's a lot of flaws within the the multiple systems that that surround the U.S. as a whole um but there's also a lot of good that comes with it you know um as is obviously with your guys' governing system as well um there's a lot of flaws but there's a lot of good stuff as well so
0: I I often have conversations with people about what the perfect culture or what the perfect society would look like, but the only way you can ever get it to work right is if every person within that society is perfect or at
1: least less flawed than average. In order to get there, each person inherently would have to be a good person.
3: Yeah, you know,
1: and that that again, that kind of goes back to the you know the my reasoning, my personal reasoning for caring is I know that there are bad people out there. Um, and honestly, having been in the military, like I, I wanted to carry before just because of, you know, the, the culture that I grew up and whatnot in, um, but after having joined the military and having the intelligence briefings and whatnot, and realizing what's going on in the world, um, it, it made me want to have some sort of option for defense, you know, personal defense even more.
2: Um,
1: particularly, so like. I can carry on to a military base. Now, once I get out of the vehicle, it has to be in a lockbox, you know, attached to my vehicle and whatnot.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But I can carry on to base here um, because, like, in the mornings when I go to work, um, the line, the the traffic line built up at the main gate when they're actually, you know, going through your IDs and whatnot to make sure you're you're actually legal to get on the base. Um, You could be backed up almost a mile. Um, so you have almost a mile worth of military personnel waiting to get on base. You know, for people who have ill intentions, we're a, we're a perfect target.
2: Um,
1: so it's and that's part of the, the reason why we're allowed to carry on the bases. Um, not all of them, most of them you're allowed to. There's certain laws in place that we're allowed to do that um, because we have had an issue with um, lone wolf attacks and whatnot on our bases in the past. And it's, you know, it's something that we have to have to be aware of. Do you feel like you should, as an
0: American and being a very different culture to ours, and I probably wouldn't this ask ask this of a serving British soldier, but do you think you should be able to take your guns home,
3: your M4? Oh, oh like from from, from base? What? Yeah. No, no. It just it's an interesting idea. Um, I believe it's it's Switzerland. I think Switzerland does it. Um, I don't necessarily think that that would be a good
1: idea because not everyone is, they're, they're not as mature as you and I are. Um, so they'd be going out back and they'd be using them and whatnot, you know, they'd be shooting their weapons and stuff and there's potential for trouble to come
3: from that. And on
1: top of that, um, from a financial, militaristic financial spot, (laughs) That's uh, That would be bad considering – so now you have a weapon that should only have 2,000 rounds on it. Now it could potentially have, you know, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 rounds on it, and it's worn out because they were taking it home and shooting it. Um, and you like I said
0: – The personnel would listen to the rules and just not use it.
1: There would be the temptation to use it, and like I said, not everyone is mature as you and I are, so they would be breaking the rules with it. That's a hell of an assumption there, by the way. (laughs)
3: That's
1: interesting, very interesting.
0: So you are happy with the way the laws are at the moment? Yeah. Apart from the cost of fully automatic firearms?
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm... Okay with that as well, because I have no personal desire to own a fully automatic weapon, and that's because I've used you know I use them on a regular basis in the military. Yeah, so you're and,
0: and, um, that
1: Yeah, well, there's that, and you gain the knowledge of in a non-military setting, fully automatic weapons are not useful. Like there, there's no use for them at all. <laughs> you know, you, you definitely won't be hunting with them. I know you still have. Actually, an American who
0: introduced me to this concept that you you don't need a reason. It's supposed to do something just purely based on the fact that it's fun. Apparently, it's not a very British thing right. to do. With guns.
1: That's true. It, I mean, it, it's don't a fun get me fun wrong. Being able to just make lots of noise. It. In. I'll be the first to tell you. You know. So the M two forty, um, is one of our primary light machine guns. It's a lot of fun to shoot, but it's a lot of fun to shoot for like a hundred rounds. You're like, okay. I'm done with this. You know, I've, I've done it. It's, it's over. <laughs> kind, of, kind of concept. Yeah, which, uh, I
0: presume like with all these things, it's great fun. until you have to pay the bills. Yeah. You
1: know, it's, it's very expensive to feed a fully automatic uh, gun, <laughs> especially, you know, considering most of them are, you know, they're not all large calibers, but most of them are. Um, it's expensive. You know, y- you go and you, You know a 240 for instance if you were to buy one you know go through all the process and buy one um, the weapon itself is exponentially expensive and then say you buy a hundred rounds of ammunition on the 240 that might last you 30 seconds you know and a hundred rounds of 308 is gonna be 80 bucks it's gone (laughs) you know so unless it's a a full auto gun is kind of it's it's a deep pockets privilege Yeah. I mean,
0: before coronavirus and a few other bits, we were looking at coming out to Knob um, Creek machine gun
1: shoot just to just to yeah. have and try and experience, like you say, just so. Knob like Creek, Creek is one of those things is that if you go, you can actually gain quite a bit of knowledge there because a lot of the weapons that are there are actually antique firearms and the people that own them are historians on those individual guns. Um, so that's kind of a double thing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun because it, it, you know, it's a lot of automatic fire and whatnot. You get. The Who doesn't want to shoot it, you know. an MG42? mg is a cool gun. Yeah, it really is. Um, and you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to fire on one of those as well. Um, well, in in the version of the MG3, which is it's essentially it's the
3: same thing. It's just a modern version of it. Um, but it's there's a difference between. Just going
1: out there and blazing away with a thousand rounds and actually, you know, in my world, I like to hit the smallest target the most accurately the most amount of times, you know. Um, so it, it might be a, a personality thing. Like if you just want to go out and have fun and make a lot of noise, sure, an automatic weapon's good for you. <laughs> but um, then there's also the game of accuracy as well. Um, there's something pleasing about being able to hit a really small target at a long distance. So you are a long-range and, you know, shooter? Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So I'm on the Air Force National Rifle Team.
2: Um,
3: so you good. And we shoot at, at two. What's that? So you're fairly good. Uh, maybe. <laughs>
1: um, I don't think so. Other people say I am. <laughs> um, I think I'm fourth on the team right now, but uh, there's there's definitely way better shooters than I I could ever dream of being. Um, just to name one, Brandon Green from the, the Army Marksmanship Unit. Um, and the type of, of shooting that we do it's, it's service rifle. Um, so essentially, you have a, a clone of what a service rifle would be. So I, I use an AR-15 that's in M16 configuration, semi-auto only. Um, but you shoot a course of fire that is at two, three, and six hundred yards, and there's no support. You use a sling, um, and that's it. and you you shoot uh, standing, sitting, and prone. Um, i I average you know the the mid seven hundreds in scores, and Brandon Green is out there cleaning the match you know with perfect 800 scores (laughs) you know so those are those are kind of things that I was naturally gifted bastards yeah one of those and then on top of that so the air force national rifle team we we still have to perform our primary duties along with um being able to shoot as well whereas the army marksmanship unit um once you make that team you actually separate from your career field. And as long as you're putting up scores, your job is to practice and teach. So basically your whole world is revolving around shooting and all you do is practice, practice, practice. So, whereas I have to go to work during the week and practice on the weekends (laughs) and maybe at night, um, he's out there practicing every day.
3: (laughs) So, and that that makes makes a difference.
0: Yeah, for sure. Where does the Navy come into it, or are they not competitive
1: enough? So, no, the Navy actually has one of the better teams. Um, Not to bash the Marines, but surprisingly their team, at least in the last couple of years, has kind of been falling off the edge. I'm not sure why. Um, I just don't – I think it might be just that it's not their priority right now. And I couldn't tell you why that is either.
3: Um, Spend money somewhere
1: else? (laughs) Well – not so much that it's just that their shooters haven't had the skill that they've had in the past. Um, <laughs> it wasn't very long ago the Marines kind of because they always pride their scout snipers. You know, you always hear about the Marine scout sniper, and the entire field they got dedicated to the might. They must be good. Yeah, and you know they got kind of a slap in the face. Well, I think it was two years ago um, the Coast Guard snipers beat them in the World Sniper Championship. <laughs> Um, and everyone, everyone's always kind of bashing the Coast Guard, <laughs> you know, in, in the terms of, 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 military rivalry and then for them to come up and beat the Marine Sniper team. <laughs> well, yeah, it maybe, was kind of a blow to their ego.
0: Yeah, I bet it was. But then I guess like with all things is all they need is a naturally talented guy to run their team. That's exactly it.
3: <laughs> Just a bit you of know, luck. He yeah. wasn't
0: hard enough be being Britain. Gonna say a marine, but armories marines are harder than your marine, so it's not comparable. <laughs>
3: um,
0: so, do you hunt long
1: range as well?
3: Um, well, so that's
1: that's kind of an interesting concept. So, myself personally, I am more confident taking a longer shot than per se the next person who's never done the
3: type of shooting that I have, mm-hmm. um, or has had the type of practice that I've had. Um, now. At the same time, I
1: personally do not like to take longer shots, but um, I'm What is a long shot? What is a longer shot? Where are you comfortable? So in competition, a long shot for me is a thousand yards. Um, now, in terms of hunting, a long shot for me is anything past 200 yards. And the reason for that being is now you're, you have to take in morals for account. Um, you're not shooting paper. You know, you're, you're shooting a living, breathing animal and a lot can happen over long distance between, you know, your, your own capabilities. And then again, it's a living, breathing animal. It's typically not standing still when you take the shot and it it might be walking or it might be quartering, you know, the shots when you're hunting are never perfect. I've only had one shot, um, hunting deer that was ever, I would, I would say was ever truly perfect. And even then it was under fifty yards. Um, you know the, the it was a it was a large doe, and she was standing broadside, like perfectly broadside to me, and she was looking away from me, so she was completely calm, feeding, not moving broadside, and that was a perfect time and shot placement. Um, other than that, they've always been walking or they're um, they're quartering, you know if they're out there a little bit farther. And when I say it comes in you know you have to take into account your morals and whatnot, it's like, okay, so do I take this long shot and risk potentially wounding an animal versus making a clean kill? Um, I never like to take second shots that's just not there there's something wrong with <laughs> my concept is if you don't kill in the first shot, you shouldn't be out there you know because you, you I mean, didn't make a, there are certain caveats
0: to that, I think certainly. Right. right, but in obviously certain parts of the world there are deer species or ungulate species that are of a size that they sometimes take two
1: shots yeah and that's that's very true and when i when i say that that's one of the it, you should only need one shot meaning that if you're not taking a good shot the first time a shot that you're confident in
3: yeah. you, shouldn't you
1: shouldn't need be a second shot, shot. Right.
2: right um
1: So there are some people out there that are, you know, they'll, they'll take a 600 yard shot and not think twice. Um, Again, me personally, my own morals and values come into play where, okay, I'm, I'm taking this animal's life. I would want it to be as quick and clean as possible versus potentially wounding it. And then having, you know, tracking it and trying to actually find the animal. It, It becomes a big mess when you're, you know, you're trying to, to track a gut shot deer or something like that. And, um, you know, then you also have to consider the, again, it, it wasn't a clean kill that the animal's suffering in the meantime, you know. And so I would rather, personally, I'd rather take a shorter shot that I know is a good placed, you know, clean kill versus taking a longer shot that I'm
3: kind of confident in,
1: but the surrounding factors may not allow for a clean kill. That sounds fair enough, so you don't you don't
0: exercise your superior marksmanship on animals. What do you think about that the long range shooters? Do you think that there is some mild abhor- abhorrence with it, or do you think if
1: they want to do it crack on you're not against it or do you, are you an ardently I'm against not it? against I'm not against it. I would argue that some people that do it probably need to practice more um, If I ever went out, so my sister she's in the air force as well, she's stationed in Montana. And we're we're hoping when all this blows over and whatnot, eventually we can go up and go elk hunting.
2: Um,
4: now
1: that's a different that's a different type of hunting where you know your average shot is actually you know three hundred yards plus, but those animals move a lot slower, and in the terrain it's a lot more open. Right, and you you know you you have more time to set up and you know get into a solid position and whatnot and actually take a good shot. That would actually be very similar to the way that you shoot in competition. Um, each animal acts differently. Obviously, um, whitetail. A lot of times, you don't have the time to do that. So it's, you know, again, it comes into the morals and the opportunity that's presented. Each case is different. Um, and like I said, most in, in my own experience, most of my shots on on whitetail have been under 200 yards, and that's just because of the the nature of the animal itself and the terrain that's presented that I'm hunting.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And on top of all this, you are a amateur or trainee gunsmith. Apprentice gunsmith, I think is the phrase you, you had in You
1: used. Yep. Yep. We're, it's, it's one of those things that I do it when I can. You know, I go down and I'll help out my, my local gunsmith and whatnot. And he's offered to, you know, teach me as I'm going. Is that mainly um, rifle stuff? Or what does that look like as an American? Uh, for, the, for now, um, a lot of it's kind of based on rifles. Um, but I have, you know, I've done some work with shotguns and whatnot. Um, a lot of it's just like minor repair and whatnot for now. I have started, he has started to uh, to kind of teach me on the like the roles of, of machining and whatnot. Um, once I so on staff sergeant, this is one thing that I'll probably do because um, I'll have time to take classes is there's a local college here that, that teaches a machining class and I'll actually take that um, on night classes after work and actually go and learn professional machining and you know, so I can learn how to thread barrels and you know, use mills and whatnot to to do those types of, of metallurgy work that's involved in gunsmithing. Um, do most American
0: shooters have their guns modified? Then
1: I presume, or is that another uh, modified in what way? You know, there's there's that's one thing that that comes with the gunsmithing, and there's so many different um, areas um, <laughs> within within the gunsmithing world that like, you see the biggest modified weapon out there is is the AR, you know, the AR platform. Um we don't actually consider that gunsmithing because you can build one of those in your garage using normal hand tools. You buy the parts and put it together, you know, they're, they're kind of like adult Lego kits. <laughs>
3: um
1: whereas, you know, you get a nice Winchester Model 70 or something like that and
3: then um
1: you know, you want to have the barrel swapped out for another caliber or something like that. That's actual gunsmithing where you have to you know you buy a barrel blank you know depending on the type of metal it may need blued or something like that it needs to be threaded and fitted to the you know the gun and whatnot um there's a lot of precision tooling and whatnot that's involved in actual gunsmithing
2: um
1: i focus a lot on woodwork um Mm -hmm. that's kind of that's kind of my area of expertise and that's what kind of developed into the gunsmith thing as i started doing stocks and whatnot for my own guns and then um make it, making them yeah yeah nice so and it's you know that was another thing that i grew up doing was just normal small woodwork and whatnot and um you know with my dad and my grandfather and whatnot um and then i you know i just kind of carried that on and i was like well i'd,
3: I'd like to make a gun stock for
1: one of my rifles and i tried it, and it it just kind of became a, a hobby passion of mine, and um, I just continued on from there. And people started noticing my work and whatnot, you know. And I just actually got a got an order for a twelve hundred dollar grand stock here the other day, so I'm, I'm gonna have to start working on it, on that year soon.
0: That's cool. Um, so when you so that is like what like a grade five grand stock, or is that just a custom fitted one? Or
1: no, that, that would be like a you know um like a triple a grade walnut stock you know that would have a a a fancy finish and whatnot it'd be custom fitted and floated to the rifle and whatnot Um, and then also it would also it would it would take uh we take into account the 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 individual's measurements and whatnot so we'd actually fit the gun to him a little bit more than we would on a standard rifle stock Um, most rifle stocks from the factory are kind of a one-size-fits-all type thing Mm-hmm. Um, when you start doing custom stock work is where you can actually get into fitting the rifle or the shotgun for that matter to the individual and it inherently makes it a better gun for that person and you're more accurate um, with that firearm as a whole because it, it fits your dimensions
0: no I think that, you're right but it's it's an interesting thing that most people will never spend any money on that and they'll just sort of wrap themselves around the most. yep you you into your yep. shot as well? Was there not a lot of wing shooting to be had where you are?
1: Oh, no. So, um, matter of fact, so the national um, championship range for trap shooting is actually right here in Missouri. It's down towards Lake Ozark.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it's a mile-long trap range. <laughs> um, wow. I, I, I couldn't tell you how many firing points are on it. Um, But there's quite a bit of that. I personally like sporting clays um, because it's very similar to hunting. At least the the setting is typically close to hunting. Yeah. I get bored with uh, skeet. Not skeet, uh, five-stand trap. Um, Skeet's okay because it's switching directions, but five-stand trap is, I find that a little bit boring because it's so repetitive. Um, Now, on the other hand, you know, my, my cousin, He's the Pennsylvania, you know, state champion and whatnot in those realms. So it's it's something that I've I've done a lot, but I'm I'm better with a rifle than I am with a shotgun. So that's that's just kind of why I focus on the rifles. um Now I do, you know, hunt a lot of a lot of ducks and, and geese and whatnot. Any of your birds out here? Notice that one behind you, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So that's my teal I got two years ago. So. Um he just had some really really nice colors on him. He's a good Drake. Um so I decided to get him mounted. I would like to get the trifecta on the teals or to get the blue wing, the, the cinnamon teal and the green wing. So that's that's the green wing. I gotta get the other two yet. Uh you all go around the world
0: and then get the, the full slam,
1: like that's the real answer. Yeah. Right, yeah. And so Missouri is actually located in a kind of like a hot spot for waterfowl. Um to where the flight paths for the waterfowl coming off the east and the west coast to get down to the Gulf of Mexico for the winter. Um, They converge right over Missouri, Iowa, and Arkansas.
2: Um,
1: So waterfowl season here, you get all species from the entire U.S. and typically within all of North America, so we get a lot of Canadian species as well um, on their way down to the Gulf of Mexico for the winter. So um waterfowling is, is a very big part, not just in this area, but you know, in, in US culture as a whole. Yeah. So
0: do you when you when you hunt those, is that with decoys from a blind or are you flighting them or uh
1: so if I can I try to set up decoys and whatnot
3: and you know,
1: I like I personally like natural blinds. So I'll take a bunch of reeds and whatnot, kind of build my own little blind and I'll I'll sit and wait for them. Um, a lot of the areas out here is kind of like swampy areas. So I'll take like a, a swamp stool and know, my chest waiters and actually I'll go out and actually sit in the reeds themselves and wait for them to fly
4: over.
3: Um, Nice. That is nice. And you're, do you have a bag limit accordingly? Yeah. So each
0: species
1: has their own limit. Um, and then there's a overall limit as well, like a daily limit, um, we have what's called the federal duck stamp, which is kind of a it's a federal thing that you have to have in order to hunt ducks. And that kind of stemmed from back in the 30s when conservation was not necessarily taken very seriously. And um, if I believe, if, well, if I remember right, I'm pretty sure it was an issue over in England as well, but waterfowl was nearly wiped out in the U.S. Um, because there, there's just so many hunters and everything's being overhunted. There was no limitations on, you know, daily bag limits and stuff like that um so many species were almost hunted to extinction yeah um, we, we had that probably 70 or 80
0: years before you that we put a not a stop to what we did we put a stop to commercial hunting of ducks um and put in place game acts and wildlife protection that kind of thing um, right which well probably was more i was gonna say was for the was for the preservation
1: of, of wildlife, which is no bad thing yep. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what happened here in the U.S. They, you know, now it's governed federally in order to keep ahead of it. And now, you know, duck populations have made it back to where they were before, and they're actually starting to go above where they were. Um, so some of the individual species they'll have what's called a conservation season, um, where they actually they'll extend the hunting season a little bit, and you're allowed to kill more of that individual species. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah we do, We don't. We don't. <laughs> Obviously, we've done,
0: done a fair few videos with a guy called Nick Horton, who is a, a, an old school wildfowler fowler and a, well, an absolute archive of knowledge on the, on the subject. And he's right. very much against bag limits and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. on, the, on the other hand, he, he notices that the wildlife populations, or at least wildfowl populations, have changed massively during his lifetime. Right. So his main attribute, he, he attributes that mostly to just human intervention, certainly in England at least. Because, yeah, we may have like a wildfowl reserve, but then we'll build right up to the side of it and put a motorway on one side. And suddenly this tranquil environment that they might once have loved will change. As
3: mm-hmm. well as
0: a lot of our wildfowl being migratory beyond our limits um, and buggering off across right. the North and getting hammered on the way one way and hammered on the way back to us. It's, there's a lot mm-hmm. more at play with our wildfowl that help, means we can't really save it quite as autonom- autonomously as you can, we have to work with the rest of Europe and Russia and Scandinavia to try and actually build a plan, which we have
1: done, but it's less solid than yours potentially for the sound of it. Yeah, and it, I think a lot of that has to do with the landmass that's available.
3: Yeah.
2: Um,
1: England is like the size of New York, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia combined. So three states out of 50 equals the entire landmass of England um whereas yeah oh, no, the entire u.s everything how does that work i don't know about that one. <laughs> um but you know between canada and the u.s where a lot of the waterfowl and whatnot comes from um and then also as well as just being easy allies um it it's makes like it having control of an entire continent. yeah it's it makes it a lot easier to kind of enforce and come up with ways to be better conservationists as a whole um when you're only working with two other nations you know unlike you guys we have to work with the rest of europe um oh, who are all much uh, much
0: older nations with much more rooted cultures and hatreds and oh yes <laughs> accordingly and our own whole hunting cultures and it's a very it's an interesting one it's an interesting one i think mm-hmm why we suffer from conservation issues probably more than the rest of the world which is why we impress ourselves on the rest of the world probably more than anyone else does Mm -hmm. Um, because it's easier to control other countries and other continents conservation than it is to look inwardly and go yeah this this is not a great plan not that i am for a one nation europe by any means Um, right (laughs) but yeah it's an interesting one when you put it like that actually we are up against it conservation wise and which is why it's much harder
1: to take a hold over anything in Europe, mm-hmm. and that's kind of one of the interesting things about the U.S. And so, you know, we have 50 individual states, and they they all have their own individual hunting laws and regulations and whatnot. But then you, depending on the type of hunting, there's the federal regulations that kind of oversee, kind of like the minimal regulations that states have to follow. Yeah. So, and that that's kind of so. Waterfalling, for instance, um, it's federally governed that you have to use non-toxic
3: shot.
2: Um,
3: That's not something that's put up by the states. That is a federal mandate. Um, But then you go to the
1: the individual states and depending. So Martha Perry has the same federal uh, regulations across the board, but if you travel uh, down to Warsaw, which is another area that I waterfall. It's on the Truman Reservoir. Um, there are some depending on the location, there's some random state governed limitations, like you can only kill so many of this certain bird or whatever, um, in a day that you don't have another location. So it, like I said, you have the minimum regulation set up by federal law, and then you have the individual state regulations that go on top of that. Um it is, it is
0: something that I admire or at least would like here, but unfortunately it would never work because those in local, like the control of local government over local wildlife populations. Unfortunately, it would never work purely based on the fact here, at least that we don't have anybody who cares about wildlife in the countryside in any local government position <laughs> to do that. Neither do we put money back into the local government like you do with your taxes and, and tags. So it would, unless right. we changed fundamentally, it just wouldn't work, but it would be nice for example, to say, all right. Well, maybe those in the north of England shouldn't shoot hares because they don't have very many, but those in the southeast of England should be able to shoot as many hares as they like because we have loads. So maybe there should be like differences from county to county, but it wouldn't work because it would just get abused. So there you go. Yeah.
1: yeah, It's it's an interesting thing, and you know, like you said, the U.S. is very, very good about um, funding conservation as a whole um a lot of our you know our state parks and national parks and whatnot all that money ends up filtering back into itself to boost conservation and then we also have some some taxes and whatnot that are involved in the sale of just hunting and outdoor equipment and that all as well gets filtered back into um, conservation and that's not just by taxes that's also you know um, some of your bigger box stores like Cabela's and uh, like Bass Pro, I believe it's like 15% of each per- purchase goes back into conservation of some sort. Um, so just just simply by buying a piece of hunting clothing, you inherently help out conservation just by buying something.
0: But that um, extends also to outdoors gear as well. So even if you're a hiker and you're using the space, you're contributing to the space. Exactly. Yep. Which is a so a strange thing that you have that you have like the ability to go and use this space, but everyone using the space is contributing to the space. Whereas here we have our public rights of way and our rights to roam, but nobody
1: contributes to that, so it's just a huge burden on any landowners. Which is an interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that's a lot of that stemmed from you know when the the national parks were were kind of being uh, built and we were actually setting up individual. Conservation areas that were uh, deemed necessary to preserve, not only for people to use in the future, um, but to kind of protect them from expanding populations and whatnot, so that they would stay natural. Um, Missouri is one of them that's lucky enough to have a national, uh, a national, uh, a national park, and it's down Mark Twain. Um, it's kind of, uh, I'd say it's southeast from where we're at here, um, about an hour and a half. I couldn't tell you how many thousands of acres it is. It is it is absolutely massive. And it's down at the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. And it's actually one of the locations where they're reintroducing elk into the local area um, because they're one of the species that were wiped out back in the day um, in that area from over hunting and whatnot. So, Putting up areas like that has allowed us to reinvigorate the the species that were on the decline. Um, so it's it's a multi-directional attack on conservation, um, on trying to preserve our natural environments around here. In doing so,
0: no, it's an extremely admirable thing. Like it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I really uh, well, I appreciate your views oh, yeah. on on everything. Um, actually, they're all very well-rounded, extremely
1: well-rounded um yeah you know it's just one of those things you know it's it's good to sit down and have a conversation especially from someone you know who's across the pond and the laws are a little bit different and you know the environment's a little bit different and you get some different concepts that may or may not contribute to what you know you're doing in your own location so it's always good to to talk with other people from other parts especially of the world and you kind of get these these different views that could potentially help out what you're trying to do
3: you know it all makes
1: us more well-rounded gun owners hunters and
0: conservationists which is exactly i think the more rounded we can be the the better chance we have of surviving in a more ever-pressing world at least yeah yeah absolutely absolutely my final question is is do you get a lot of anti-gun hate or is that just not a thing
1: personally uh it depends on the area um so i grew up in new york like I said, and it's uh, a lot of people are like, Oh, well, how's the city and whatnot. Um, but I actually, you know, New York's a very large state as a whole where, you know, I was seven and a half hours away from the state or away from the, uh, away from the city. Wow. Cool. So you have two very clashing types of cultures, you know, New York city is very far left and they're very anti-gun and you might have a couple of friends that are from down in that area. And so you post something on Facebook and they'll, you know, immediately jump on and be like, Oh no, that's not how it should be. But then once they come out and they see the way that you're living, they experience a different side of things and they realize, Oh, maybe, maybe this is okay. And then when you go to the city and you, you realize, Oh, this is why they think, you know, it's, it, it's a mix of cultures, you know, a lot of the clash is between people from the inner cities and the people from you know the more rural locations and i personally don't end up getting a lot of the hate from it um i have had some confrontations with my friends in the past um but at the end of the day what you have to do is you just have to be mature about it and be willing to sit down and have a conversation and if they're not you know then you know it's unfortunate it's one of those things it's like well you just have to move on, then, you know, find somebody else to talk to, at least at that moment. You know, I'm not saying to abandon your friends because they see a different view from what you do, but you need to be, you know, open to having a civil conversation, which is something our society as a whole, you know, our generation has kind of forgotten how to do. I think a lot of it has to do with technology because you can instantly have conversation across so many boards, but you're not actually having the conversation in person. You don't necessarily understand where the person is coming from. hundred percent.
0: And and suddenly you just feel like everyone should be a little bit more like you and forget that yep. the world is full of different and beautiful people. And it would be such a shit place if we didn't have
1: that variety. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's one of those things is if you are receiving, you know, kind of receiving that type of narrative from From another person that you just have to be willing to sit down and have a conversation, and a lot of times you know, and that's that's kind of the beauty of working in the military is it's such a mix of personalities and people and background um you you get so many different viewpoints, and you you talk about them you know like when you have a down day where there's not much going on, you know you're all sitting in the break room and conversations on politics and everything else like that they all come up, and you know it, it wasn't a little you know it wasn't too much long ago that, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with, with, a, with a girl that I was working with um, and she, she's from inner city, California, from Los Angeles, you know, very anti-gun. And she knew that I was on the rifle team and whatnot. And she started asking me some questions and, you know, we, we just literally sat down, and I was like, look, this is why I feel that I do. And, you know, this is why, you know, I'm pro-gun and whatnot. And by the end of the conversation, she had actually loosened up on her on her viewpoints and had understood that you know maybe
3: the gun culture in the U.S. is not
1: necessarily a bad thing. And it was simply just by having a conversation, you know, she started to understand why things are that they are, and that a lot of it is, you know, it's from a lack of education. Um, they don't realize that we do have processes involved and whatnot to make um, like the purchase of firearms and whatnot not as easy but also safer at the same time um which is
0: obviously the the, the facts of it are obviously not aided by the liberal or left-wing media because to be honest it's still pumped out over here like you can just walk into a gun store and buy buy a gun and a lot of the the stuff and the facts they're using is quite clearly old but it doesn't matter
1: because most people just read it and go yeah america's bad you just buy guns everywhere Yep. yep and that's you know like i said this actually is one of the biggest misconceptions is that it's not it's not that easy um and the the media unfortunately you know they're they're equally bad on on both the left and the right they only it drives me nuts because there's no one who actually reports honestly anymore so they'll they'll get a, a story and then they take out the parts that they want to report on in order to push their narrative you know, it's kind of like CNN versus, versus Fox News. So CNN is going to be extremely left wing and only going to pick out, um, you know, the very left wing narrative um, things. And then Fox News is going to do the same thing for the right wing
2: um, is
1: part of the reason why it drives me nuts. And I don't I don't watch the news very much anymore because it's just so much misinformation that spreads through the media anymore. Which is um well, it's the world we live in, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, and that's that's why having conversations are so important because a lot of times you're educated not only on the other person's viewpoint and why they're thinking that way, but you can gain some sort of knowledge on the actual subject because you you learn why the person thinks that way because there's a there's a process behind that there's a reason why they think that way, um, you know so individual conversation is always good agreed mate. Right? to thank you very much i always recall you star sergeant smith no no <laughs> i'm not in uniform today you know
0: so <laughs> right thank you very much it's been absolutely brilliant and i hope everyone watching this or listening to this has enjoyed and learned something whether that be fact about american gun culture fact about american fishing hunting or that there's three types of teal in america you can go and try and kill if you're bored of
1: shooting yep, like we have in the UK
4: <laughs>
1: yeah yeah call back anytime
3: man you know I'd love to have another conversation will do mate you take care you too stay safe take